Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Today, we begin a new series in the book of Colossians. The Colossians are people who lived in a city known as Colossae. It's a small city in Asia Minor, uh, basically uh, modern-day Turkey. So uh, if you can kind of visualize that on the map uh, geographically. Now notice, as I read the opening greeting here from Paul, the author, that we see that he's addressing the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So there's a city, right? But there's also a church. There is the church of Colossae, where we understand the people, uh, the Colossians. This probably came as a result of two main things. You may have remembered we just finished up a series in the book of Acts. You may have remembered Acts 2, when Peter, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches uh, the first gospel message of the, of the church. Uh, and, and, and there were people there from the land of Phrygia. Okay, and they heard the gospel there. We hear them telling the wonders of God in our language as they were speaking in tongues. And the people of Phrygia were right there in, in the city of Colossae. And so those folks there, while they journeyed to Jerusalem for the feast, had heard the gospel. Also, uh, we know that Paul's missionary journey led him to uh, the area of Asia Minor and also to uh, a well-known city uh, of Ephesus. And during that time, most likely, uh, scholars would say that he interacted with uh, people from that same area, possibly uh, Epaphras at the time. So we're going to hear some, over the next uh, you know, three, or three months or so, we're going to hear about this, this guy named Epaphras, uh, who probably uh, became a Christian through the missionary activity of Paul and then brought that gospel back to this uh, small city known as Colossae. And yet we have a letter here. Paul is writing to address these people uh, and also to address some concern. See, what had happened most likely is that Epaphras uh, saw some, uh, some false teaching begin to creep in the church. The false teaching is, is most likely what, what we understand to be Gnosticism. You may have heard of this. Uh, basically, uh, people have called it the Colossian heresy. That is, there's false teaching. There's human tradition. It's based on a lot of uh, spiritual elitism. That is, we have people who are in who know, and there are people that are out, those who don't know. And there are kind of levels of knowing. There's also uh, some intense religious practices that go along with it. The bottom line is that this church was dealing with a poison that was uh, distorting their view of Jesus, distorting their understanding of the gospel in such a way that their lives were getting messed up, 
right? Because our teaching, what we believe to be true, begins to impact our lives, doesn't it? And so as we begin to think about the situation in which Paul writes over the next three months, I believe that God's going to do the same thing. He's going to point out some, some maybe heresy in our own life, maybe some confusion, a, a, a distorted view of Jesus in the gospel so that all the more we see the sufficiency and the supremacy of who Jesus really is. And our lives ultimately show and reflect that sufficiency and supremacy. So as we begin to walk through this series, going back in time to a city that's actually in ruin today, but seeing that there's such applicable truth to a world that has such a distorted view of Jesus, a confusion about the true nature of the gospel, and therefore our lives reflect that. Colossians 1, verses 3 through 8. I'm going to continue on this opening passage here. Paul says this after his introduction. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul's literally writing here a thank you note, isn't he? He's grateful. He's thanking God for the faith and the love that is on display in the lives of these people. Right? They, the Colossian people, they, they, love, they trust Jesus. They've heard of him, and they've, they've placed their trust in him. They've relied on his work. They see his sufficiency standing alone. And at the same time, uh, he is thanking God for their love, the love that they have for all the saints, the love that they have for one another. You know, I, I wonder if we can't immediately identify with Paul in his gratitude before God. I couldn't help but begin to think about people in my life currently, also people in my past, who have put on display for me what it truly means to trust in Jesus. What it truly means to have a love for other people, a selfless, sacrificial love for other people that is rooted in their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, without getting all sappy and whatnot up in this mug, I did think of my wife, who has, over the last 15 years of our marriage, and even before that, shown me what it means to love Jesus, to trust Him, to seek His Word, to go to Him 
in the early hours of the morning when I honestly just want to watch Sports Center. She's pursuing the Lord Jesus. I think of her when I think about uh, just what it means to trust the Lord and to also have a sincere love for other people. When I just don't really care, to be quite honest, she's shown a love for them. I think of my mentor at school. I think of uh, Scott Gibson, who, who had an unshakable conviction about the truth of the Scriptures. An unshakable commitment as well to my development as a man, and as a husband, and as a preacher. His faith in Jesus, his love, his willingness to sacrifice time, week in and week out. I'm thankful to God for him. I'm thankful for other pastors and elders that I know. I think of Bernie, who happens to be in the room, and Jordan, and Jim, Levi, and Adam, and of course, uh, the elders here in our midst. I think, of, I think of Paul, and Tim, and Jeremy, and other pastors that we've had come here like Dan Williams. These men show me constantly what it means to trust Jesus and to love other people. But I've got to be honest, especially after the last eight months, while not minimizing those other folks, I've been encouraged and blessed and grateful to God for the faith that is in each and every one of you in this room. Your trust in Jesus in the midst of very difficult circumstances, in the midst of um, challenge, in the face of human tradition, in the face of a culture that does not see the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus, you have often showed me in your actions and your words what it means to trust Jesus. And as I watch you as well begin to relate to one another, I see your love. I see the love of Christ in you. And I thank God for that. You know, and I couldn't help but think, like, is this not why we work as elders and pastors? Is this not the joy that comes from seeing that the application of the word in people's lives leads them to trust Jesus this is, and to love one another and love people in this community? This is our heart for you. And when we see it, the joy that we receive from that is so satisfying. Uh, it gives me so much satisfaction. We thank God for your faith in Christ and your love for one another, your genuine, sincere concern for this community. And I'm sure as you're sitting there, again, I think you can identify with Paul and maybe even my ramblings and say, yeah. I know that person. I know that individual that showed me what it meant to have faith in Jesus. And you're thankful to God for that. But what's causing it? Right? He's thanking God for it, their faith in Christ Jesus, the love they have for all the saints. But where is it coming from? If you look at verse 5, it tells us, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Friends, our view of eternity has a way of shaping the temporary, doesn't it? Our expectation for the future has an influence on how we approach the present. For instance, culture has no problem preaching this message. Life is short. 
do what makes you happy. Right? The, the, the expectation of what is to come, the temporary nature of how they view life, prompts them to live in a particular way. Because life is short, because there's an end in sight, because this moment is really all that we have, do what makes you happy. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's actually a Facebook group called Life is Short, Do What Makes You Happy. And there are 200,000 people that are in the group. I promise I'm not one of them. Just kidding. I'm not. Life is short. Do what makes you happy. How about a Buddhist thought? Do not dwell in the past. Do not dream of the future. Concentrate the mind on the present moment. Is this not what we value in today's society? The moment. The instant. We are a people that live without reference to any sort of rootedness and past. And surely we don't live in some sort of expectation of a glorious future. Life is short. Do what makes you happy right here, right now. Right? Don't think about the past. Don't worry about the future. Just live in the moment. This is the world in which we live. And yet we wonder why so many of us are anxious. Why we are so uh, isolated. And ultimately we wonder why we live life without meaning. Because friends, life without reference to the past and surely without reference to the future, some sort of expectation about what is going to happen in the future, without reference to that, we lose all sense of meaning. And I think that's really the kind of world in which we live, a world devoid of any true meaning. But herein lies the hope of the gospel. Are you ready? Life is long. It's not short. Life is long. And soon, for those who believe and belong to Jesus, soon we will be with him in eternity. Any amens there? Do I have to beg for that? Life is long. It's not, right, it, maybe here it's short. But life goes on. It keeps going. And we will spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. Right? It's the hope of heaven. The hope that is laid up for them in heaven is the very thing that is causing such trust in Jesus and causing such love for other people. The gospel is causing them to live in a particular way. The hope of heaven and what is laid up for them in heaven is causing them to have faith uh, in Christ and love for one another. I couldn't help but think about the example of Christ in John 13. Right? His, his, his rootedness in the past and his expectation of what was coming is determining and influencing the way that he engages in relationship in the present. Listen to what John 13 says. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, past, and was going back to God, future, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Excuse me? He's God, came from God, right? He's going back to God in all of his glory. And because of that, his rootedness in his past and his his understanding and expectation of where the Father is going to bring him in the future, he now is motivated to serve and love his disciples by washing their feet. There's a man who's living with a sense of meaning. And he has served us in that way. You're going to see a lot in the book of Colossians. uh, Almost a, we need to live this way because of what Christ has secured for us into the future. This idea that our expectation of what's going to take place in the end is shaping our behavior in the present. So be on the lookout for that often as we look at that. Eternity shapes our behavior. Our hope that is laid up for us in heaven is the thing that is prompting us to live in a particular way. And so for those of us who have a sincere trust in Jesus, and for those of us who are quick to serve others, quick to care for others, have a sensitivity to other people, I'm sure it's because of you are anchored in eternity. And for those of us who who are so consumed in living in anxiety and fear and and, want to take matters into our own hands and then also don't really care when someone is in need, never seem to be available to somebody else's problems, never have a listening ear, if we're that person, we're struggling in that area, it's probably because we're stuck in an instant. We're stuck in a moment and we're believing the confession of culture rather than the hope of the gospel. Eternity will shape the present. Paul sees that that's exactly what's taking place in the Colossian people. They have a hope that is laid up for them in heaven, and he's thanking God that, that the, the, the result of that hope is that he, they trust Jesus and they love other people. They're living out the great commandment, right? Love God, love neighbor. Now, when we're grateful for other people, don't we usually thank them? Don't we usually you know, send them a thank you note. I don't know about you, but as I read this, it seems a little misplaced, the gratitude. Why are we thanking God for the faith and the love of other people? Shouldn't we be thanking them? Reminds me a little bit about a little humorous banter, at least in our own world, the Maisie world, that Dorian and I have had about the, uh, i got to be careful, the whole uh, Santa issue. So we were talking back and forth about, um, you know, what are we going to do here? You know, what are we going to do? And uh, it hits me like a ton of bricks as we're thinking about it. Like, we got presents, we got, you know, to and from tags. And I'm thinking, at what point do I I put down to so-and-so from Santa? At what point does that happen? Like, how... That's just not true. Like, you know, okay, again, bear with me. I worked 
I worked, I got money, I went out out of love and sincerity for my children and bought them something because I love them. And then we're going to go home and sit down and go to Evelyn, love Santa. I'm out. I'm out. I'm totally out on that. Let's be fair, Santa's a lazy bum. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. He sits at the North Pole and does absolutely nothing for anybody. You know who does it? Me. It just seems a little misplaced to give Santa all the love when us parents got the work done. You know what I mean? Shouldn't we be thanking the people for their faith and love? After all, they're the ones doing it. Why is Paul thanking God the Father for their faith and their love? Well, listen to this. I think the fruit is only as good as the root. Right? The, the well is only as good as the spring. The, the house is only as good as the builder. Correct me if I'm wrong. Some of your houses, you're thinking, man, we had a really bad builder. The Colossians are not thanked for their faith and love because they are not the ultimate source of the hope that is prompting this faith and love. God is the source of it. That's why God is being thanked. Because God is the source of their hope that is prompting them to have faith in Jesus that is also prompting them to love other people. God is the source of it, right? The substance of our lives, anything that we get to interact with, is simply the fruit of the gospel that has taken root. All of our faith, all of our love, is the result of God's gracious activity into our lives. There is absolutely no room for pride, no room for patting ourselves on the back. This is all from God. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever Amen. God is being thanked because he is the source of what Paul is hearing of and what the Colossians are representing. Paul's gratitude is not misplaced. It is exactly where it needs to be. God deserves all the praise, the honor, and the thanks for anything and everything that is good in any of our lives. To him be the glory. Amen. I also think here that based on that, you know, we are thanking God for the hope and the faith and love that come with that because this is a gift. It's not a wage. Imagine Paul. Imagine this scenario. And, you know, maybe it's happened. You have employees at Image Auto. Imagine Ethan on payday coming into your office weeping and saying, Paul, man, I just want to thank you. Thanks so much for my paycheck. This means the world. You didn't have to do that. <laughs> it's silliness. Ethan's like, you better believe I got paid. I worked, and now I get paid. That's how it works, right? Because a wage is an obligation. It's an obligation. Ethan works 80 hours in a two-week span. That's a liability on Image Auto's books. You owe him the money. It's owed. It's a wage. Right? So nobody thanks anyone for a wage. But they do thank him for a gift. 
Isn't that what we see here? The faith and the love that's prompted by the hope is, comes from God, and it comes by way of a gift. God is giving it to the Colossian Christians. He's giving it to them. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on our merit. It is simply a gift from God to be received by faith. But look at the language. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Right? He's talking about this hope now. Of this, of this hope you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Right? The, the, it came to them. How did God give it to them? It came to them. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. Right? Phrygia, the people of Phrygia, when they came up to Jerusalem, they didn't come to the gospel. They came for the feast. They were hungry. They wanted to worship, right? But not on the terms that the gospel brings. And so the gospel in that moment, by divine initiative, in his wisdom, this is the moment in time where I'm pouring out my spirit on all flesh. The gospel comes to them, right? They didn't come to Paul. Paul's missionary activity, prompted again by God the Holy Spirit and his wisdom, went all the way there. The ministry of the church went there and brought the gospel to them. The gospel, in the form of a word, a message, came to you. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget how the gospel comes to us in the form of a word. It is a message. It is a declaration. And that is how God uh, gave them this hope through proclamation, through a message says this, of this uh, you have heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. This is divine initiative. God is sending his son into the world, and now he is sending the church into the world. And we see the gospel by nature is this, right? Of this you've heard before in the word of truth. It's a true word. The gospel is God's true word. You see truth again at the end of verse 6. Grace of God in truth. The gospel is a word, but it's God's true word that comes to us. But also, it is a true word of a work of grace, right? And, and understood the grace of God, the unmerited favor, the covenantal commitment of God in Christ, in truth. You heard that. So the gospel came to the, Coloss the city of Colossae, to the people of of Colossae, as a word of truth, as a work of grace declared to them. Friends, there's no faith in Jesus. There's no love for other people. There's no hope for heaven if there is no proclamation of God's true word, which brings a, a, a clarity to God's gracious work. There's, there's no salvation. There's no hope. There's no faith. There's no love. It all comes from the gospel coming to us and prompting such things as it's being proclaimed by people. Right? Isn't that another interesting thing that we see here? That it was heard. That means it was spoken. It was uh, uh, understood. That means it was explained. It was Learned, that means it was taught by people. People teach and proclaim to people. 
right? That's the crazy thing about divine wisdom and how he is using people to reach people. We talk about that all the time at Renovation. That the divine instrument in his wisdom is people. Think even about uh, Jesus himself, the God-man, uh, right? Divine initiative, God at work, and he's a man, flesh and bones, human instrumentality. That's what we see taking place here as well. That Epaphras, the beloved fellow servant, the faithful minister of Christ, is teaching them, has spoken the gospel to them and is explaining things so that they can understand it. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that person that spoke the gospel to you, that explained it, that walked you through step by step? And in that moment, what we saw is that divine initiative is meeting human instrumentality. God is doing it through the means by which he has chosen in his divine sovereignty to do so. God uses people to change people. And, you know, it, it was neat to just look at that crowd last week. We're not about crowds. We're not about numbers. We never have been. That's not our heart. That's not our philosophy. That's not how we see it. But to see uh, at least 30 people that do not currently have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in that room and that God us renovation church at a hotel in Liverpool New York of all places was giving men women and children an opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel right divine initiative human instrumentality and we see as well that it bears fruit it grows Indeed, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. It's a, that when the, when the word is preached and it was received by faith, a seed begins to grow and to develop. And the gospel is not a stagnant thing. It's alive in us. And it changes us. It bears fruit in us. And the fruit, going full circle, is this. You trust in Jesus in every aspect of your lives. You see Him for who He is. You rely upon Him. And then you begin to love other people, all because of this great hope that has been laid up for us in heaven. And we're crazy enough to believe at Renovation Church that the seeds that have been planted in our hearts, and as we begin to plant seeds throughout Liverpool, Baldwinsville, Clay, and now into Cicero, North Syracuse with another uh, small group, missional community that we've started, we believe, we're crazy enough to believe that in 2014, the gospel is still bearing fruit, the gospel is still growing, and that God is transforming the lives of people through his people even today. That's why we're doing what we're doing. At the end of the day, we're thankful. We're thanking God for his people. Their faith, their love that springs up from hope. But ultimately, we're, we're thanking God for His gospel. Right? The source of change, at least the, the message that points to Jesus, His person and work, that really enables that change. Right? The, the, the gospel is the source of all of our hope. Thank God 
for the gospel, the source of all of our hope. Today, I think we live in a day like any other, unlike any other, in the sense that our generation really has a sense of entitlement, don't they? Like, we're not the most grateful of people, at least relative to other generations who have endured much and have worked hard for what they have. We're a people that have worked little and are living on the, basically, the, uh, we're beneficiaries of another generation that's worked hard for us. And I'm not here to say that, that we don't work hard, we don't do our thing, we don't earn a wage, it's not my heart here. But the bottom line is this, I think by and large, we look at society and we see a generation of people that feel entitled. We cannot feel entitled when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't deserve it. It's not a wage. It's a gift. God is not obligated to provide you a hope laid up in heaven. He's obligated to no one. But he does offer it as a gift. And that's not an entitlement. right? When we see the gospel, and when we see other people as gifts, right? Is not people, are not people gifts from God? And I know some of us are like, depends on the people. You're talking about, right? <laughs> there are some people we read this text and go, I don't know, faith and love, yeah, maybe. And we're not good at relationships. We mess it up. We're sinful. We hurt one another. But at the end of the day, we all know that the greatest gifts that, that God has given us are not things, they're not cars, they're not homes, they're not vacations. They're not anything that this world would offer in terms of their t its temporal uh, joys, but people are the greatest gift that we have, the people around us. That's what makes the pain that, of hurt so difficult. God's people are a gift from God. They're to be stewarded well. And I wonder if some of us are not seeing that, are not stewarding relationships well. This gift from God is to be treasured, is to be something that we commit to, that when we go to our knees in prayer, we thank God for the lives of people that God has placed in our midst. But we cannot lose sight of the source, that God and the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ is the source of all of our hope, and the source of all of the faith and love that we see in other people. It's the only explanation. Thank God for His gospel. It is indeed the source of all of our hope. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we have so much to learn in this book. We're just getting started. We submit ourselves to you. We, we recognize and confess that we so easily minimize Jesus 
we so easily distort the truth of the gospel. And surely we are a people that feel entitled to all of the benefits that we have. Lord, we repent. We turn to you together. If there's anybody here tonight, Lord, that doesn't even know the hope of Jesus, not embraced it, they have questions about it, Lord, I pray that you would draw them. Draw them to one of us so that we might share that hope. Lord, I pray that the gospel would bear fruit and grow in us as a people here. That our hope would determine our behavior in the moments. That we would trust Jesus and that we would have an unshakable commitment to love other people no matter what the personal cost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.